Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. To do just a quick review of what we touched on last week, just a very brief overview of the book of John in case you were not here. The main thrust of the book of John is this. John's gospel proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he provides eternal life to all who believe and follow him. So this is not just about raising your hand in service and saying, okay, I believe I'm going to continue to live life my way. This is believing in him, believing in his name, and then following him as Lord and Savior. This is what John, uh, why he wrote the gospel is to prove this to both Jewish uh, believers and non-Jewish believers. So the Apostle John is who wrote this book. He is different than John the Baptist, okay? He's one of the 12 disciples who then Jesus named the apostles. He and his brother James were given the nickname Sons of Thunder. So they were power-packed, bold personalities, and Jesus gave them that nickname. Uh, The mother uh, uh, followed them, Salome. She followed Jesus and her sons around in ministry, and their father, Zebedee, was a successful fisherman. We don't know a ton about them, but we at least know who they are. Now, the Gospel of John is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first three Gospels were written more of a timeline of Jesus' ministry from beginning to end uh, and talked a lot about his teachings and parables and so on. John was written to both a Jewish and non-Jewish audience, so he did not necessarily go through and talk about all the Jewish tradition, but he hit on specific miracles, specific instances, and how people defended him as both the Messiah that would appeal to the Jews and the Son of God that would appeal to the non-Jews. Also, we touched on last week uh, that it was written later than the first three Gospels. So it was written after uh, after Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. So it was a completely different world at this point. The Jewish people were scattered all throughout the different regions, and there were actually more non-Jewish believers than Jewish believers at this time. So I personally believe, and so do a lot of other theologians, that John was writing both to Jewish and non-Jewish uh, believers and those who would be seeking. And, uh, and he uses specific language because of that throughout his book. So each week, what we're going to do is have a different church family member uh, read these scriptures. We're going to call on you randomly. Be ready. I'm just joking. We pre-record these. We would never do that to you. But we do want you to read ahead anyway. Uh, so we're going to take a look at this week. It's John, 9, uh, John 1, 19 through 34, and then we'll get right into the word. Hi, I'm E.J. Davidson, and I am reading John 1, 19-34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. All right, so again, the Apostle John writes a lot about John the Baptist, especially early on in this book. So uh, you may know this if you grew up in church, but John the Baptist and Jesus were related. Many people believe that they were second cousins because their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, uh, they believe were cousins. We know that they were at least relatives. So John the Baptist, he's first introduced in the book of John when Mary, who was pregnant uh, with Jesus, went to see what Scripture says her relative Elizabeth, and she was pregnant as well. So uh, John the Baptist's father, his name was Zacharias. Uh, if you uh, follow out the, the story, he was unable to talk after not believing that his wife would give birth to a son. So he wasn't able to talk until after he named John through writing. Now, Zacharias was a priest. The only way you become a priest is if your father or lineage through your lineage was a priest. So John the Baptist would have uh, been expected to become a priest. And if you follow John's life, you know he was anything but that. He He was considered a hostile, rogue preacher at that time. Now, If you go back all the way at Luke chapter 1, we're going to stay in Luke for a little bit, then we'll get to John, which is our passage for today. There's the angel who's telling Zacharias about, Zechariah about uh, John's birth, and he says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, this was John the Baptist's ministry, to make ready a people who would be prepared for the Lord. I love how it says it here, that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. John the Baptist led a very odd life. He wore odd clothes, he ate odd food, and he preached what was an odd message, especially to the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that day. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, It's not on the screen, but it says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. So John the Baptist, what he was, he was the forerunner for Jesus who preached a message of repentance from sin and toward God. He wasn't talking about Jesus quite yet, but he was making the path straight for Jesus to preach about the gospel of the kingdom so that they would come into a saving knowledge. And one of the things that's very interesting in John's life is this, is he spent at least, I don't, we don't know exactly how many, but at least 20 years in preparation for a ministry that was approximately two years long. 
Now, some studies would show you maybe one year, maybe some as long as three years. But if you just average this out, this man was in the wilderness being prepared by the Lord for 20 years, at least for two years of ministry. Now, most of us would want to flip that, right? We want about two years of preparation and over 20 years of fruitful ministry or business, education, or wherever you are. And yet the Lord saw it fit to put this man into a wilderness to be prepared by him alone so that he could preach this one message of repentance with precision and authority. I want you to see that the Spirit of God was all over this family from before or from the pregnancy of Elizabeth on. If you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 41, it will be on the screen. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. She goes to visit Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John. And it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I love this. Jesus shows up on the scene. He's still in a womb. And though he comes into this room, Elizabeth is spiritually affected by it in such a way that she is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if John the Baptist is filled at that time as well, but we do know what we've already read from Luke chapter 1, 15 through 17, that he'll be filled with the Spirit even before he's born. So we know John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you go on about 20 verses later to verse 67, Zechariah is still unable to speak because of his disbelief. John's born, he writes down that the name is going to be John, and his mouth opens up. And he says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at this, Elizabeth filled, John filled. Now Zechariah, the father, as he's beginning to speak, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. And he says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on to be before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Watch what happens in verse 80. The child grows up and becomes strong. In the Spirit. Look at that capital S. That means the Holy Spirit. It says he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. We don't know how old John was before his mom and dad kicked him out of the house and said, go to the wilderness all by yourself. He may have been eight, nine, ten years old. But what we know is this, is that mom and dad were both filled with the Spirit and gave John an upbringing that was necessary for him to go out to the wilderness and stay there as long as he needed to until he knew God had given him a clear calling. And this is what I'm saying today. We need spirit-filled parents who are going to raise their children up so that they are willing to then step out on their own, hear from the Lord themselves, and walk out the calling God has for them. Moms and dads out there, we are not responsible for telling our children where they're supposed to go in life. We are responsible for raising them in a spirit-filled home so that they can hear the Lord for themselves. Can you say Amen. If you don't have kids, the Lord will put youth and children into your lives if you ask them so you can help raise up this next generation. Amen? So it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, during the, the, the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came 
to John in the wilderness. And he goes out and he preaches around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this comes from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, Every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So think about this now. Over 20 years of preparation, purging, being forged in the fire, the fear of man being taken away. So he's only Fear, fearful, not in a scared way, but has the awe and the reverence of God alone ready to carry this message. Think about how much of the Old Testament he would have meditated on. Remember, his dad's a priest. All right, so he grew up an educated young boy until he went to the wilderness. And he's hearing from God, taking God in, taking his word in, meditating on it, chewing on it. And eventually, when it was time, it says the word of God came to John. I want you to think about this. 20 years of being with the Father, with God Almighty, being prepared. He built a history with God in private for a long time before he ever had his public ministry. I want to, to caution us in this, is that we must be careful to not seek favor in public without being forged in private. You know, I'm not, when I say about favor, I'm not talking about popularity or likes on social media or any of that, but we do. We pray for favor, right? It even says that Jesus grew in favor with both God and man. So it's good to have favor with man. That means they let you speak life into them and let you have conversations, be in relationship and share the gospel. So those things are important. But I don't ever want to have favor in public without first being in private with the Lord, knowing I've been obedient to him. I've been filled with the spirit. I have the confidence necessary and I know what I'm called to do. Many people try to step out too early not sure of what the Lord's telling them because they just want to make something of themselves. I believe John chapter one, verse 20 was only possible because he spent that time being prepared in the wilderness. It says here that he did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. You see the Levites, the priests and the Levites, the Levites all of the priests came from the Levitical lineage, but there were also priests who were assistants to priests. So we had the Levites and we have the priests and they're coming and they're saying, are you the Messiah? Who is this guy? Who do you say you are? But John knew, listen, for 20 plus years, God's preparing him and he knew who he was and he also knew who he wasn't and he knew what he was called to do. He knew the message that God had put into his voice. And I want to be in a place in my life, and I want us to be in a place in our lives where we could say we did not fail to confess, but we confessed freely who we are in Christ and who Jesus is in our lives. And in verse 21, it says, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? No. Well, then who are you? Give us an answer so we could take it back. What do you say about yourself? And again, John makes this reply, I am the voice of one 
He's saying he knows, he understands he's one, but he's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He knew the voice that God had given him, but it was taking place and it was formed in the wilderness. The pastors and I went through a book recently called Teach Us to Pray by Corey Russell. And in that book, it says this, it's in the wilderness where voices are formed. If God has truly called you, he will prepare you in the wilderness. If he has called you to follow him, he will take you to the wilderness. It's in the wilderness where all the props are kicked out, where we are all humbled, stripped, and made to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. It's in the wilderness where God deconstructs everything you thought you knew about him, and he begins to reintroduce you to himself through the spirit of revelation. It's here where the knowledge of God is imparted to us. He goes on to say, voices become voices through silence and solitude. That is so counter-cultural. How do you become a voice in today's culture? Scream louder, offend more people, do something that's edgy. He's saying voices become voices through silence and solitude. And it's this quality of messenger and message that penetrates the noise of a chaotic culture in the world and in the church. When many people hear the word wilderness, they think of a dry, lost season. Because where does our mind go? If you were raised in the church and you remember the Exodus where the Israelites are going through the wilderness, what do we think of? 40 years instead of about 40 days. Disobedience, misery, complaining, infighting, worshiping idols, can't get to the promised land. Okay, that's because man had his way in the wilderness. What was God's plan for the wilderness? A time of supernatural provision, daily miracles with manna, Uh, an ability to walk through this Red Sea, the Jordan River, miraculously through them splitting and stopping. Ongoing miracle after miracle as he was preparing them for their promised land. See, a wilderness was supposed to be a, a fruitful season of seeing God move daily as he prepares you to step into the anointing that he has to give you the voice that he's given you. And yet we are afraid of the wilderness. I don't want a wilderness experience. Maybe you do. Maybe without the wilderness, the Israelites don't get in the promised land. Maybe without the wilderness, John doesn't become the voice and have the voice that he was called to. Maybe we should actually be asking God, will you take us into a private season in the wilderness to prepare us for a much stronger, more effective anointing than I could ever, ever have unless I did this on my own, right? Without that wilderness experience, maybe we don't walk in the full authority that he has for us. Or we could try it on our own. But I don't think we're gonna get there, folks. So I want you to ask yourself this question. What voice is the Holy Spirit giving you to make straight the way for the Lord. No, you're not John the Baptist, neither am I, but he's giving you a voice. He's giving you a message and he's placed people around you that don't know the Lord. In fact, he's placed people around you that are living on some mountaintop far from the Lord or in some valley far from the Lord 
or is living this crooked lifestyle of wickedness, disobedience, and rebellion. And I believe the Lord still wants to give us a voice that can bring those high mountains low, that can bring those valleys up, and that could actually straighten the crooked path so that people see Jesus after interacting with you. So that's my question, is what voice is he giving you? Somebody from our church family was recently given their voice for the Lord for really the very first time out in public. This individual emailed me the week after uh, I preached a message called Living in the Overflow When Overwhelmed. I do have permission to share, though they would care not to share live and in person. So I'm gonna read you the message they sent me. Pastor Kurt, little did I know your sermon on being overwhelmed in the overflow would prepare me for the events of the next day. On Monday, I was having lunch with a friend when I heard a man and a woman screaming, Daddy, Daddy, someone call 911. Sitting in the restaurant was an elderly man who was completely lifeless and unresponsive in his chair. I immediately got my phone out and I spoke to the dispatcher. Now let me just tell you, she says, let me just tell you something. She goes, I am not a public speaker and I have never, all caps, I have never prayed out loud. And I actually cringe when you tell us to get into prayer groups. I do not have you going into prayer groups today, but that does, it makes people nervous. Like, oh my goodness, I don't wanna pray. I'm not a public speaker. I've never prayed out loud. And I actually cringe when you tell us to get into prayer groups. Well, I don't know what happened, but this behind-the-scenes Christian, without hesitation or thought, handed my phone to my friend, got up, laid hands on this man, closed my eyes, and spoke the name of Jesus over him. And I want us to clap right there, because that's awesome. Right, many Christians would just sit back and say, Lord, just bless them, help them from afar. You're not a God that respects distance or space or time, so I'll stay here. Nope, not her. Never prayed in public before. And this is not with other Christians where it's like a safe environment. She goes over, lay hands, and starts speaking the name of Jesus. She says, well, I know that it was out loud because I remember the daughter thanking me for my prayers amongst her distress calls for him to hang on. Well, I kept it up until I heard him make sounds, and she said, okay, he's back. Woo, which is awesome. This man who was either choking on something or had a heart attack, whatever was wrong, came back. Thankfully, the EMS crews showed up fast, and I went back to my seat. Now, as they were putting him on the stretcher, I heard them ask his name, and he responded, Vernon. Now, some of you might know who she is after sharing this. She says, now, come on. What are the chances that this stranger on a Monday afternoon that I prayed over would have the same uncommon name as my own son? I knew right then that God put me where he wanted me at that moment. I don't know the fate of this man, but I do know that the power, I love this, I do know there's assurance that the power, love, and goodness of God was displayed to everyone on that afternoon. I love the vision that the Lord gave her in that. It wasn't just the man or the daughter or the son, but everyone who saw this woman, this behind-the-scenes Christian, get a voice from the Lord and do this publicly. She says, I can't tell you how many stared at me and kept coming up thanking us. I felt blessed and thankful that I responded. Who knew when I put my yes on the table that it would be in Olive Garden? 
I thank you for your instructions. <laughs> Give me a yes and some extra breadsticks. Let's do this. Let's do this. I love this. She goes, I thank you for your instructions, guidance, and encouragement for preparing me for this. I am living in the overflow. Let's just give God another round of applause for this lady. Woo! So here's the trick in this. She didn't obey the Lord in the Olive Garden. That wasn't her actual act of obedience. She obeyed the Lord when she was in her time of prayer and put her yes on the table. Does this make sense to you? She said, I'm going, I'm going to obey you. I put my yes on the table. So that's, that's her like mini wilderness. That's her preparation time, whether it's, whether it's when she's out and about doing her vocation or whether she's with the Lord quietly. The Lord was preparing her and she put her yes on the table and said, I, I will obey you. So now an opportunity comes and now she writes like this, like, I don't even know what's happening. I don't know how I'm over here. My hand is laid on, like, right? If we would actually have time to contemplate this, maybe we would disobey. Like, well, I don't know, God. Well, how are they going to respond? Am I going to look like an idiot? What if he dies? Like, what if this happens? What? No, no, no. The yes was on the table, and the Lord said, now's the time to get your voice. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's good. So back to John. These priests, they continue to press John. All right, you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not a prophet. Who in the world are you? So then he quotes from Scripture. They keep on pressing him. They're saying, if you're none of these people, then why do you baptize? See, for the Jews at that point in time, they had ceremonial cleansing and ritual cleansing. If they were unclean, even the people of the days, not just the priests, but if you were unclean, you'd have water poured on your hand or sprinkled and so on. But Jews were not immersed in an area called, or in a practice called baptism. Now, a lot of people think that John the Baptist and then Christians invented the practice of baptism, but it was around them. Who was baptized at that time were non-Jews who were converting to Judaism. They didn't need a little bit of sprinkling or pouring. They needed fully immersed. And when they come up out of water, and this was after circumcision, this was after training and education. And now these priests were saying, okay, the non-Jewish person, which we call a Gentile or Greek, they have done everything they need to do to show that they are turning to Judaism. They were fully immersed came up as ceremonially clean, and they could then participate in the activities in the outer courts of the temple. Now follow this, Jews did not participate in this baptism because that baptism was to be fully immersed. That word baptizio is fully immersed or dunked all the way under. This is not pouring, this is not sprinkling. So now picture this, Pharisees are ticked off this rogue preacher who's supposed to be a priest but walked away from that, didn't do it, pressure's on, and now you are fully dunking our people. What are you doing this for? And John answers him this way. I baptize with water. He doesn't even answer him. I love this. Oh, he would have gotten on a lot of our nerves, the way he, he ministered and so on. Why do you baptize, they ask. Well, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one who you do not know. Right? So they want all the attention on John. And what does John do? Puts all the attention on Jesus. 
He says, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What's John saying here? He says, I'm not even worthy of being Jesus' slave. See, a house servant at that time would prepare food, would prepare water and so on. But the act of a slave would be the one who would untie your sandals, take your, we can call them shoes, but sandals off, and they would wash the grime, the dirt, the mud, all that junk off of one's feet. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the low in his presence. I'm not even worthy to untie them, let alone begin to wash those feet. And this meant something to the Pharisees. There was actually a saying that the Pharisees had that went like this. A disciple who is a follower might do anything for his master that a servant did except to untie his sandals. And they knew, disciples, you could do anything that a servant would do for the one you're following, just not this one thing. Because they knew how low of an act it was. And now John the Baptist is bringing this up and he's saying, I'm one of these ones that is not even worthy because he is the one that is worthy. This is not false humility. And it's not spiritual weakness. What it is is what scripture calls being poor in spirit. Recognizing our place without Jesus. So we go low so he can be exalted. We step back so his name can step forward. It's called being poor in the spirit. And scripture says that the kingdom of heaven are those. We get to apprehend this thing when we remain poor in spirit. So it's not over. The very next day, he continues to get berated. The next day, John is coming. The Pharisees are still asking questions. Now he sees Jesus coming and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he continues to talk here. Now he says here, this is the one that I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So now he's saying here, he's the one coming after me. He's about six months younger than John. His message is coming after John's. But he's saying he's the eternal one because he actually came before me. Now we see this phrase, Lamb of God. It's easy for us, because we've read the end of the book, to think when we think the word Lamb of God, we automatically think of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus had, right? The sacrificial Lamb. None of these Pharisees are thinking this. When John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they're not thinking, oh, John the Baptist obviously thinks that he's gonna be a sacrificial lamb, die on a cross, forgive his sins, not at all. I want you to understand the context of when this happened. This is at the breaking in of when God begins to speak after 400 years of silence. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're about 400 years of silence. So these Jewish people, they are doing all of their uh, um, temple sacrifices and activities and so on. And they're adding rule after rule, law after law over 400 years. God begins to speak. But in between this time, there was something called the, the, the struggle of the Maccabees or the great struggle. So the Maccabees were a priestly family of Jews who led a successful rebellion against enemy rulers at that time. And they actually re-consecrated the temple during that time. So in these days of the Maccabees, the lamb 
or more specifically, the horned lamb was a symbol of a conqueror. It was a symbol of victory and of great success. In fact, Judas Maccabeus, who was like the hero of this great struggle and this battle, was uh, described as, as a victorious lamb. So if you look into this more and more, in this period of time, the Pharisees would have known the lamb stands for a conquering champion of God. When we read this and we say lamb, we think of sacrifice, love. If we would compare somebody to a lamb, we would think, oh, they're nice, they're soft, they're humble. Listen, God begins to speak through John the Baptist and he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I was just waking anybody up who was falling asleep. And they begin to think about Yes, they understand the sacrificial lamb part, but they also recognize, oh, Judas Maccabeus, he was considered the lamb. He was considered the car. John is saying this man here who we don't even know yet is the conquering champion of God who's going to defeat sin and death and all darkness. This is what they're thinking. They know the sacrifice, but they also know the conquering part. I love this. In one phrase, John's wrapping up Jesus' love, his suffering, his sacrifice, but also his triumph over sin. Verse 31, it says, I myself did not know him. Did he know him? Go back about 20 minutes ago. Did Jesus, or did John know Jesus? Yeah, they're relatives. Like they played kickball together growing up. They weren't from the same region, but they would have known each other. He's saying, I didn't know him because the Father, God, did not reveal that Jesus was actually the Messiah to him yet. He says, the reason I came baptizing with water so was that he might be revealed to Israel. You know, the Lord's, I think, asking us is this. Who needs Jesus revealed to them in their lives that he has placed in your path? Who? Who is it? that's waiting for one conversation about Jesus and that crooked winding road becomes straight and wide. And now they know Jesus because you have a voice, because you had a message that you were obedient with. John gave this testimony. He says, I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me this. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down on and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. I propose to you this. If John the Baptist gets a little bit heady, becomes a little bit of a hot shot in year two or three of the wilderness and says, I got this, God. My daddy's a priest. I got this. I figured this out. And he leaves the wilderness before his season of preparation and walks in his own strength and power and not his anointing. I propose to you that he would not have been able to discern the Son of God as Jesus was walking toward his baptism that day. This is my urge to you. This is my request to you is this. Don't stop ministering if the Lord has you in a place, but ask him, is this a season? Is this a wilderness season for me where I should step back? I should be alone with you 
And how about this? Have a wilderness season every single morning. How about that? Or maybe it's in the evening for you where you get alone and it's just you and God and you're sitting there in silence and solitude and you're saying, Jesus, would you speak to me now? Father, would you speak? Holy Spirit, would you speak? I don't want to speak on behalf of you until I know I am prepared. Until I know that I can look and say, look, the Lamb of God is right there. And you can point people accurately to Him. You can throw up the one slide from earlier on. I don't think I mentioned it earlier. But John went through three phases that I believe that we need to go through as well. First, he was in the wilderness. So there was a season of preparation in the wilderness. Second, there was a fullness of the Holy Spirit. And third, there was obedience. So follow this out. The preparation in the wilderness, it was on both John and God to do. John had to stay there, but God sovereignly spoke. So it's both of us. It's both you and God in preparation. You must sit long enough to be prepared. Second, fullness of spirit. That's totally on the Father. You ask Jesus to fill you, but it is up to him to pour out his spirit. So that part is on Jesus to pour out. Third, obedience, totally on you. You have the spirit in you. You're filled with the spirit. It is on you to put your yes on the table and to begin to walk in obedience. Could you imagine John's preaching out in the wilderness, people are being baptized and the religious officials show up. If John doesn't have that heart of obedience, what's he gonna do? He's gonna shirk back. He's gonna, he's gonna come back. He's not going to obey anymore. But John obeyed. So what happens with Jesus? Jesus comes into the water. He's baptized in water. He doesn't need to be. He doesn't need forgiven. He does it to fulfill righteousness. So watch out what happens. He comes up and the Holy Spirit of God descends on him as a form of a dove and it remains on him. You know why this is important? Because in all the New Testament accounts, the Spirit of God was given for a time and a calling for a specific purpose. But it wasn't like a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, who was just water baptized, is now spirit baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And though he's fully God, he chose to become fully man. And now he is baptized in the Spirit. Guess where he goes after he is filled with the Spirit? He goes into the wilderness. Was that wilderness a dry, empty time where he suffered through it and he disobeyed God? Absolutely not. That wilderness was the best time of preparation. The enemy comes and tempts him. Jesus is filled with the Spirit, knows the Word of God, uses the Word against God, uses the Word against the enemy until the devil leaves him. And one of the Gospels says that he comes out of the wilderness filled with the power of God. And what did Jesus do? He obeyed the Father his whole entire life. That's my call to you today as you stand real close is this, is I want you to have confidence and I want you to have boldness regardless of what season you're in. In fact, I'm gonna have my altar team come forward at this time and we're gonna close with a song. And I want you to be able to come forward to receive prayer really for anything but the three areas that I feel like the Lord is saying are those three areas that that John went through and Jesus went through as well. Maybe you feel like you're in a wilderness season and the Lord's not speaking to you. It might be because he already spoke and he's waiting for you to obey. But if you feel like you're in a wilderness season, we want to pray for you that it would be a fruitful time of preparation.
maybe you just want, maybe you've been praying the prayer focus all week and you want Jesus to baptize you fresh with his Holy Spirit for power. The third area would be is if you feel like God's calling you to something and it takes radical obedience. Right? It might be a business adventure. It might be something outside of your career. It might be something with your family. And maybe he's just saying, listen, now is the time to obey. And maybe you are scared to death. Maybe you're excited, but you just want prayer. I want you to be able to come forward while we sing this closing song to receive prayer and to get out of here with the confidence of the Lord. So come forward as the Lord leads you and as we sing.
yes on the table we would obey you before you would even ask us to do something and that we'd be able to walk in obedience in jesus mighty name we thank you lord we thank you thanks for listening be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media